0: Hello and welcome to this installment of AZ Law. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Weick, and I'm a Phoenix attorney. In this program, we explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems. AZ Law came about to provide Arizona legal news for Sun Sounds of Arizona, which is a nonprofit reading service for people with disabilities, which make it difficult for them to read or hold printed material. It's broadcast the third Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. and other installments are available on Sun Sounds on Demand. Our ArizonasLaw.org website is independent of SunSounds, but its prime focus is to support SunSounds, which, by the way, is a service of the Rio Salado Community College, along with KJZZ and KBAQ radio stations. Our website has links to those stations and information on how you can become a member of SunSounds. We urge you to do so now at ArizonasLaw.org. Easy Law also is now available for download at our website, as well as on iTunes Podcasts, Google Play Music and Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, wherever you find your podcasts. So please tell your friends, go to one of those sites also, and go ahead and subscribe and download our podcasts. Now, let's get to the news. We have lots of interesting articles to get to in this program, so let's go ahead and get started right now. The first one is one that we reported an exclusive on Arizona's Law.org. The Perfect Storm Expanded Arizona Supreme Court Sets Two Records in 2019. The Arizona Supreme Court set two new records in 2019, and Chief Justice Robert Brutnell notes that it was the quote-unquote perfect storm. He says 2020 will show a noticeable increase in the number of opinions from the expanded court. The Supreme Court's 26 issued opinions in 2019 are the fewest issued by Arizona's highest court in modern times. Also, the seven justices have not issued an opinion since the brush and nib opinion attracted national attention. That was back on September 16th. Never has the Supreme Court gone that long without releasing an opinion either. So two records. Brutnell tells our AZ Law that it is a funny set of circumstances that led to the fewer I- opinions being issued. Among the confluence of events was the departures of Chief Justice Scott Bales and Justice John Polander, the resulting appointment of two new justices who really want the first ones to be good, said Brutnell, and the naming of a new Chief Justice and Vice Chief Justice. In addition, a minor factor may have also been the difficulty and the 100. 10-page length of the brush and nib opinion. James Bean and Bill Montgomery are those two new justices, by the way. We'll get back into a regular rhythm as people get a little more experienced, the new Chief Justice explained. The reality is we're trying to take more cases. We're a group of people that wants to work hard. They're here to write opinions. Brutnell notes that the seven justices have been discussing ways to produce a higher output in 2020. However, he notes that part of it is not in our control. I would argue we take all the cases we ought to be taking. A couple of the ideas they have discussed involve the Intermediate Court of Appeals. A more robust transfer policy would see the Supreme Court accepting cases directly appealed from the trial courts. That recently happened in the appeal by Payson Mayor Tom Morrissey. Although that was an elections-related case, it could have first been heard in the Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court took the case and issued an order, although the written opinion will be released later this year. Brutnell also tells AZ Law that the Court of Appeals judges do a very good job and we've never taken cases just to tell the Court of Appeals that they're right, but we may start doing that. Like the U.S. Supreme Court, the Arizona Supreme Court is not required to accept all appeals from that intermediate level. Rather, it considers which cases need to be accepted. Brunel notes that there are 17 cases already in the pipeline and predicts that the court will issue around 70 opinions in the coming year. That would set a modern record for the most opinions issued in a year, and it would be more than double the average output over the past 15 years. These two new modern records come against the backdrop of Governor Doug Ducey and the state legislature deciding to expand the size of the Supreme Court bench in 2016 from five justices to seven. One of the governor's key stated reasons for expanding over the objections of then Chief Justice Bales, was that the court would be able to issue more opinions. In a letter justifying that legislation, Ducey stated that Arizonans deserve swift justice from the judicial branch. Adding more voices will ensure that the court can increase efficiency, hear more cases, and issue more opinions. End of the quote from Ducey's letter. He also suggested that the additional justices would allow for more certainty for the parties to the litigation. Brutonell explains to AZ Law that while he has had nothing, he has nothing bad to say about the court's expansion. More opinions does not necessarily lead to more certainty in the law. Rather, having Supreme Court opinions that are unanimous or nearly so lead to more certainty because it would be harder for them to be overturned. When the governor appointed three new justices in 2017. 43 opinions were issued and there was no gap of more than one month between opinions, the governor's office declined to respond to AZ Law's request for comment. We also spoke with Chief Justice Brutnell about other topics as well, including priorities, legislative and otherwise, in the coming year. We will be on on next week's program. We will present portions of our interview with Chief Justice Robert Brutnell. Now let's move on to an article written by Paul Davenport of the Associated Press. It is dated January 10th. Arizona impeachment trial judge Frank Gordon Jr. dies at age 90. Frank Xavier Gordon Jr., a former Arizona Supreme Court chief justice who drew high marks for how he presided over the 1988 impeachment trial that resulted in the removal of Governor Evan Meekum, has died. Gordon died Monday, three days before his 91st birthday, the state high court said in a statement on Thursday. It did not specify the cause of death. Meekham's impeachment trial resulted in the first-term conservative Republicans' removal from office for misuse of public money and obstruction of justice. In presiding over the impeachment trial, Gordon earned the respect of senators who understood that he was a leader, said Robert Glennon, a University of Arizona law professor who has written about the case. He did great, Glennon said. He was a consummate gentleman and he conducted himself in a way that reflected well on himself, on the bench, and the entire legal profession. Paul Eckstein, who was one of the impeachment prosecutors, said Arizona was lucky to have Gordon as chief justice to preside over the trial. He was courteous and fair, but also firm, Eckstein said. It wasn't easy to hold everyone in check, but he did. Just a great man for the position who served with incredible class and judgment, said Eckstein. Daniel Edelman, a Phoenix lawyer who in 1988 was one of the judge's two law clerks, said Gordon did a masterful job of educating legislators on how trials are conducted and avoiding the impression that he was encroaching on their duty to judge the facts. He made such an effort to let them know he was going to be fair and impartial, and they all believed it on both sides of the aisle, Edelman said. Edelman and fellow co clerk Frederick Petty wrote in a 2005 article about the impeachment case that, the Gordon each ni- that Gordon each night during the trial had his clerks research likely legal issues that might come up the next day. Gordon was provided a State Department of Public Safety driver during the trial because of death threats. Gordon had been a Mojave County Superior Court judge when Governor Raul Castro appointed him as a justice in 1975. He was the first appellate judge appointed under a new merit selection process that had just been approved by voters. Gordon joined a Phoenix law firm after he retired from the bench in 1992. Survivors include his wife of nearly 70 years, Joan, children Trey and Candy, three grandchildren, 12 great-grandchildren. Son Scott Gordon had died previously. And memorial services will be held this coming Monday after visitations at the First United Methodist Church in Phoenix and graveside services at noon on January 17th in Kingman. And that article from Paul Davenport of the Associated Press, Arizona impeachment trial judge Frank Gordon Jr. dies at age 90. And again, he was the chief justice of the Arizona Supreme Court at the time of that impeachment trial in 1988. And I encountered him then. I was a reporter back then, before going to law school. And everything that the uh, attorneys quoted in the article said uh, about him were definitely true. He was a consummate gentleman, and very good uh, to uh, work uh, to to cover as a reporter, and to be in front of as a as an attorney as well. Although I didn't have that opportunity. Our next article is also from the Associated Press, and this is dated January 9th. Gunman gets life term in fast and furious killing of Border Patrol agent. And this is reported by Astrid Galvan of the Associated Press. And here is the article. A a man convicted, and there's a typo there, a man convicted of shooting a U.S. Border Patrol agent nine years ago in a case that exposed a botched federal gun operation known as Fast and Furious was sentenced Wednesday to life in prison. U.S. District Judge David Berry of Tucson sentenced Heraclio Osorio Arayanas to the mandatory life sentence after hearing tearful statements from the sisters of Brian Terry, the agent who was fatally shot while on a mission near Rio Rico, Arizona, on December 14, 2010. Osorio Arellanes is one of seven defendants who were charged in Terry's slaying. He was convicted of first-degree murder and other charges last year after being extradited from Mexico in 2018. Terry's death exposed the Fast and Furious operation in which U.S. Federal agents allowed criminals to buy firearms with the intention of tracking them to the criminal organizations, but the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives lost track of most of those guns, including two found at the scene of Terry's death. The Obama administration was heavily criticized for that operation. Former Attorney General Eric Holder was held in contempt by Congress for refusing to turn over documents related to the sting. The Terry family has flown from Michigan to Tucson to attend hearings in several cases that were tied to the agent's death. On Wednesday, his two sisters spoke tearfully about life without their youngest brother. Terry was a man filled with so much dedication to keeping our country safe, Sister Kelly Willis said. He lit up every room he walked in and had a beautiful smile, she added. You would think the time lessens the heartache, but it does not, she said. Terry, who is 40 years old and a former U.S. Marine, was part of a four-man team in an elite border patrol unit staking out the southern Arizona desert on a mission to find ripoff crew members who robbed drug smugglers. They encountered such a group and identified themselves as police. The men refused to stop, prompting an agent to fire beanbags at them. They responded by firing AK-47 type assault rifles. Terry was struck in the back and died soon thereafter. Osorio Arianes was the shooter that night, but he contends that he did not have a fair trial, and his attorney said he is illiterate and did not understand the proceedings. I feel like my rights are being violated as well, Osorio Arianes said on Wednesday. The judge rebuked Osorio Arianes as he handed down his sentence. I think you know what the law is of the United States, but you refuse to accept it, the judge said. In the United States, if you take the life of a human being while committing another felony, that is murder in our country by statute. Five of the seven men charged in Terry's killing, are serving prison sentences after pleading guilty or being convicted. Only one, Jesus Rosario Favela Astorga, has not been extradited extradited, or tried after being arrested in October 2017. Tucson sector chief Roy Villarreal, who along with about 20 other agents was present at the hearing, said in a statement that the sentencing brought them one step closer to justice. The sentencing brings a painful time closer to an end and serves as a reminder of the grave dangers our agents face in their selfless commitment to the safety of their communities and country, Villarreal said. And that's the end of the article from Astrid Galvan of the Associated Press. Dated January 9th, gunman gets life term in fast and furious killing of Border Patrol agent. Our next article is from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services, dated January 6th. The headline, State Strikes Deal to End Voter Lawsuit. State officials have agreed to alter procedures to ensure that Arizonans who change addresses are not turned away at the polls because their voter registrations have not been updated. The deal requires the Department of Transportation and the Secretary of State's office those are the Arizona departments, to revamp the procedures used when someone shows up at an ADOT office to update an address. Put simply, any change of address for a driver's license will now automatically update the voter registration records unless the motorist opts out. That same procedure will occur for online address changes. Potentially more significant, any driver who changes addresses with ADOT who is not already registered to vote will be asked to to sign up. And in cases of online changes, the motorist actually will have to say that he or she does not want to register to keep that from happening automatically. Attorney Sarah Brannon of the American Civil Liberties Union acknowledged that part of the agreement by the state to do that actually is more than the original lawsuit sought. It instead was focused on those who had already registered to vote. But Brannon said it is consistent with what is required under federal law. Petra Falcone of Promise, Arizona, one of the groups that filed the lawsuit, said the agreement is crucial to ensuring the people who have moved get to exercise their right to vote. I'm expecting my early ballot to come in, she said. If it doesn't show up, I'm not going to get my ballot, Falcone continued. I may not even be registered to vote anymore. Until now, a motorist had to affirmatively ask that the change also be reflected on voter registration rolls. The result, according to the 2018 lawsuit that was filed in federal court, was that about 384,000 registered voters who updated their addresses with ADOT since the 2016 election were still registered to vote at their old addresses and that's not permitted, the lawsuit charged that violates federal voting laws. More to the point, it also meant that many people were likely to show up at the wrong polling place and be turned away. The settlement filed this week in federal court spells out that any change in address for a driver's license, quote, shall serve to update the customer's voter registration record or register the customer to vote, end quote, unless the person says she or he does not want to do that. There is a similar requirement for those who change addresses on ADOT websites registering the person to vote or updating the voting files. More practically, it requires ADOT to update its computer database to specifically allow for electronic transmission of the complete voter registration information, including any change of address, to the Secretary of State's office. That upgrade apparently already was in the works when the deal was filed in court on Monday with an expected completion date of the end of this month. At the heart of the issue is the National Voter Registration Act, which is designed to make it easier for people to register to vote. A key provision says that any change of address form submitted to the state for driver's licenses shall serve as notification of change of address for voter registration. Only if the person says he or she does not want to change voting addresses does the mandate not apply. That language is designed to ensure that the person can vote when he or she goes to the polls near a new address. It also eliminates the problem that someone who has signed up for an early ballot will not get it as these ballots are sent out in non-forwardable mail. In a preliminary ruling in September of 2018, U.S. District Court Judge James Thielberg acknowledged that the system in place at the time at ADOT for address changes for driver's licenses required people to affirmatively opt in to also having their voter information updated, and that was directly contrary to the terms of the NVRA. But the judge at that time declined to order the state to immediately make the changes, saying to do that so close to the November election would cause chaos. And that led to the negotiations that resulted in the deal filed this week with the court. Brannon stressed that nothing in the agreement alters existing Arizona laws that in most cases require proof of citizenship before someone can register to vote. The only exception is for those who vote only in federal races who are entitled under a separate federal law to instead only avow under penalty of perjury that they are eligible to cast a ballot. And that's the end of that article. State strikes deal to end voter lawsuit. Reported by Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. Well, let's go back to federal court for this article in Out of Tucson. U.S. government will appeal judges' ruling against the Rosemont mine. This is reported by Tony Davis of the Arizona Star. The U.S. government is joining a Canadian mining company and letting the courts know that it will appeal federal judges' ruling blocking construction of the proposed Rosemont mine. The Justice Department filed its formal Notice of Appeal on Monday with the 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. It's an early step toward challenging the U.S. District Court's ruling that found the Forest Service's approval of the open pit mine mine, to be arbitrary and capricious. At issue is Toronto-based Hudbay Mineral Inc.'s plan to dispose of 1.9 billion tons of waste rock and mine tailings on forest service land in the Santa Rita Mountains southeast of Tucson. The mine waste disposal is an integral part of the company's proposal to build the country's third largest copper mine at that Rosemont site, which lies in the eastern Santa Ritas along Arizona 83 Highway. U.S. District Judge James Soto in Tucson ruled in the end of July that the Forest Service's approval was quote-unquote inherently flawed by its failure to establish that Hudbay possessed valid mining claims for those 2,447 acres of public land where it plans to dump the waste rock and tailings. His ruling came the day before Hudbay had planned to start land clearing for the $1.9 billion Rosemont Construction Project. Under the federal 1872 mining law, such claims are not valid unless the company shows that valuable mineral deposits lie underneath them, Soto ruled. To date, HUD-Bay has not made that showing. Soto's ruling came in response to separate lawsuits filed by the Tohono O'odham, Pasqua Yaqui, and Hopi tribes, and by four environmental groups, including the Tucson-based Save the Scenic Santa Rita's and the Center for Biological Diversity. The Justice Department, like HUD-Bay, made no mention in its appeal notice, which was filed on December 23rd, as to what legal grounds it will cite to challenge Soto's ruling. It filed the appeal notice on behalf of the Forest Service, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the U.S. government in general, and several federal officials, including Coronado National Forest Supervisor Kerwin Dewberry and U.S. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue. Hudvey filed its Notice of Appeal on December 20th. We don't comment on pending litigation. Our positions on appeal will be stated in any briefs we file during the course of the appeal, said Andrew Smith, a senior Justice Department trial attorney, in an email to The Star on Friday. Such an appeal notice is a placeholder used to indicate the readiness to appeal. In anticipation of a briefing scheduled to be set later by the Ninth Circuit, said Glenn McCormick, a spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Phoenix. It's our responsibility to lay out the government position in our brief. It is not something we're going to put in a press release up front, McCormick said. We have to write the brief and research the law, and there's a lot involved in that. HUD Bay officials have repeatedly said, as they did in filing their appeal notice, that Soto's decision misapplied mining laws and regulations that have been in place for decades to authorize and even encourage mining activities on public lands. They have not elaborated on that point. Environmentalists have expressed confidence that what they call Soto's well-reasoned decision will be upheld on appeal. Originally, the environmental groups and tribes sued on a wide range of issues, including the potential for serious damage to tribal cultural resources, for depletion of groundwater supplies and pollution of surface water, and for significant impacts to the jaguar and other endangered and threatened species. So far, Soto has ruled only on the mining claims issue and given no indication as to when or whether he'll rule on the other issues at stake in the lawsuits. One of the suits challenged the Army Corps of Engineers' approval in March of a federal Clean Water Act permit for the mine, but the Corps has since suspended that permit because of Soto's ruling. And that article from the Arizona Daily Star, Tony Davis reporting, was headlined U.S. government will appeal judges' ruling against Rosemont Mine. Our next article is from the Arizona Republic, and it's from January 7th. Reported by Lauren Castle, judge will not release Juan Martinez sexual harassment investigation records. Here's the article. Once again, the public has been denied access to hundreds of pages from an investigation into sexual harassment claims against Deputy Maricopa County Attorney Juan Martinez. Presiding Disciplinary Judge William J. O'Neill denied a request by the Arizona Republic and other media for the records to be unsealed. Two months after new Maricopa County Attorney Alistair Adell said she was prepared to release them if the judge granted the motion. According to O'Neill's written denial, the investigation is a human resource record that the Maricopa County Attorney's Office and the State Bar of Arizona had previously agreed would be sealed. Former County Attorney Bill Montgomery, now an Arizona Supreme Court justice, had refused to release the documents when he oversaw the agency. What one tells an employer regarding a human resource issue often requires an openness that is built on trust, O'Neill stated. There can be limits to maintaining privacy in an employment setting, but there should also be safeguards. The judge later stated that employees are worthy of respect. O'Neill stated in his order that the media is not prevented from accessing the investigation after the danger of prejudice has passed and the ethics hearing involving allegations against Martinez has concluded. A date has not yet been set for that hearing. This court's interest lies in determining the truth during these proceedings. The likelihood of testimony being altered, modified, or pressured is apparent. O'Neill stated in the motion, or in the order, the administration of justice is not served by discouraging candor in such a way. Martinez is best known for prosecuting the case against convicted murderer Jodi Arias. For years, he has faced allegations of sexual harassment from women in his office and from within the legal community. The county attorney's office investigated Martinez in December 2017 and interviewed 30 employees, according to court records. The allegations included making inappropriate comments of a sexual nature, primarily to law clerks, engaging in unwanted touching, and making persistent unwelcome invitations to go to lunch or on a date, court documents stated. One clerk claimed Martinez told her he wanted to climb her like a statue or words to that effect, according to the court records. The documents stated that Martinez invited her to Las Vegas and said he could guess the color of her underwear. In March, Martinez was accused in a formal complaint by the State Bar of Arizona of harassing several female employees of the county attorney's office. In April, Montgomery stated that the 2017 internal investigation took more than five months and that Martinez was disciplined. The discipline included a written reprimand in his file and mandatory training. The written reprimand meant that the employee was ineligible for a performance pay that year, which resulted in the loss of several thousands of dollars, Montgomery stated in a letter. O'Neill decided in August that Martinez will not face ethics charges connected with the sexual harassment allegations inside the office, saying that it had already been addressed by the county as a personnel matter. Martinez is still facing allegations of providing information to a blogger, providing false testimony during an investigation, and making sexual remarks to a Maricopa County Superior Court employee. Also on Tuesday, O'Neill ordered that only still photography will be allowed during the ethics proceedings and witnesses may not be photographed at all. The media will not be allowed to be in the room during sealed portions of the hearing. And that report was from Lauren Castle of the Arizona Republic. Judge will not release Juan Martinez sexual harassment investigation records. Well, let's finish up with another article from the Arizona Republic, an interesting one that has been going on for quite some time. This is reported by Richard Rellis of Arizona Republic, and it was published on January 8th. The clock is ticking for Tempe squatter Steve Sussex after Arizona Supreme Court refuses to take appeal. A man who has battled for the right to stay on an increasingly valuable parcel of land near Tempe's downtown was a step closer to being booted from the property this week as the state's highest court announced it had refused to hear the case. Steve Sussex, since the mid-2000s, has waged a legal fight, one in which his victories have been few, to stay on the land that he considers his birthright. The state of Arizona won ownership of half of the parcel in 2010. With Wednesday's decision by the Arizona Supreme Court not to hear the case, Tempe's claim for the remaining parcel remains. Three years ago, the city filed for and won the right to eject Sussex from his land, but that order has been on hold while Sussex has been appealing it. Sussex's attorney, Jack Willenchick said on Wednesday that he would consider whether to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which would be the jurisdiction of last resort. Willenchick would have 90 days to file such an appeal. Tempe has coveted the land for decades. The city pushed to claim the land right around the time it flooded the once dry salt riverbed steps away from the land, creating the city's signature attraction, Tempe Town Lake. So let me read that sentence again. The city pushed to claim the land right around the time that it flooded the once dry salt riverbed steps away from the land, creating the city's signature attraction, Tempe Town Lake. The most recent appraisal by the county assessor valued the land at more than $1.1 million. The areas surrounding the one and three-quarter acre parcel located at First Street and Farmer Avenue have filled with eateries, condominiums, and high-priced apartments. The Sussex parcel has become an anomaly in the downtown area, a throwback to when the dry riverbed was treated as a junkyard by residents. Sussex, who is a self-described junker, has filled his land with vehicles in various states of operation, including a bus festooned at times with colorful graffiti. Sussex, in previous interviews, said he delighted that the views from the pricey apartments nearby include his junkyard. The parcel and its colorful belongings are also visible to riders on the passing light rail trains. Besides the debris, the property is also the site of an adobe home, one of the oldest in the region. Though proclaimed historic by the city, the house has not been preserved in any fashion. Sussex and his family added on to it through the years and portions of it appear in disrepair. The history of the land and this dispute date back to territorial days and the Enabling Act that was passed by Congress in 1910. That act plotted the mostly vacant land of the Arizona Territory into parcels. Congress intended that certain parcels be held by the territory and eventually the state, and auctioned off over time to raise money for public education. Apparently, unbeknownst to Sussex's ancestors, the land where they lived was made property of Arizona. Sussex first did battle with the Arizona Land Department, which, prompted by Tempe, acted to assert its rights over half of the land. Sussex originally claimed to own the land through adverse possession, the legal term for squatters' rights. Essentially, he argued in court documents that he won title to the land by openly occupying it without anyone taking action to kick him out. Courts ruled that Sussex's pleading of squatters' rights did not apply against a government. In 2010, the Arizona Supreme Court rejected a chance to weigh in on the case, granting Arizona clear title to the western half of the land. The state put up signs declaring the land as property of Arizona and has occasionally stored equipment there. In response, Sussex went on the offensive. He filed a suit against Tempe in 2015, asserting he owned the remaining land under squatters' rights. He lost that case as well. Tempe filed a motion to evict Sussex from the land in 2016. A judge granted the city's rights to remove him, but his attorneys appealed. It was that appeal that ended up before the state's highest court. Sussex's attorneys argued that the transfer of the parcel from the state to the city was null and void because the property was not sold at auction under terms of the Enabling Act. Lower courts had ruled that Sussex has missed his chance to make this argument. Sussex's attorneys in petitioning for the Arizona Supreme Court to look at the case argued that such a position set a dangerous precedent it creates a dangerous incentive for public entities to wait to bring their claims as the city did here and an inescapable and unfair trap for litigants the petition read it is that question that Willenchick said might be worthy of review by the nation's highest court The city, in its reply, said that plain statutory language and court decisions have ruled that actions filed against a public entity must be filed within a year, including allegations that a property transfer violated the Enabling Act. Tempe also asserted that the already complicated deal over the land was even more complicated. Tempe said that it was not clear whether the property was indeed state trust land. The state of Arizona and the Union Pacific Railroad were in a long dispute over whether the property was actually trust land or owned by the railroad under a right-of-way act. The dispute was settled by money with the exact ownership of the property remaining unclear, the city said in its reply to the Supreme Court. All that was clear, the city said, was that after documents were filed and money exchanged, the eastern half of the land belonged to Tempe. Arizona Supreme Court justices met this past Tuesday to consider whether to take the case. On Wednesday, minutes of that meeting were released with a single word notation giving the justices answer denied. And that article was from Richard Rellis of Arizona Republic. The headline clock is ticking for Tempe squatter Steve Sussex after Arizona Supreme Court refuses to take appeal. And with that, we reach the end of this installment of AZ Law. Remember to listen or download our program wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe as well. And since our primary purpose is to support the important services provided by Sun Sounds of Arizona, please don't forget to go to their website and donate, sunsounds.org. The link is also on our website. We have several plans to grow and improve this program in the coming weeks. Your comments and suggestions to make this program better, always better, are always welcomed especially since this is a new program. Email me at paul.wyke.azlaw at gmail.com, and Wyke is spelled W-E-I-C-H. Until next time, I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, thanking you for listening to AZ Law.